You're listening to the Almira Radio Hour, a podcast that opens the door to culture, news, and stories behind the stories. We're your hosts, Sheila Lal and Nina Bhattacharya. This episode, I am so delighted to share with you a conversation that I recorded with Saraswati Jones about a month ago when she was amidst artist residency in Taos, New Mexico. We had a few connectivity issues during our conversation, which affected the audio quality in a few parts, but I think you'll find this really, really worthwhile. It is always such a delight to end an interview with a giant smile on my face. And with that, let's get to it. So today I'm really excited to be here with Saraswati Jones, a musician, a vocalist, a community organizer, a cultural organizer, and just a general good friend. Saraswati used to be a longtime Boston resident and, like me, was a Michigan resident for many years. And she's Bengali. So there was many reasons why we connected when I first moved to Massachusetts. Currently, Tanya is a resident at the Wurlitzer Foundation of New Mexico. And I'm calling it that because I cannot pronounce her first name. Is it Helene? Helene? It sounds like a very quite name. It's it's so actually even the folks who work here sometimes they say Helene and sometimes they say Helena. So I say Helene, but um yeah. So I'm so happy to be here. <laughs> it's so good to have you. How would you introduce yourself? Exactly that way. I'm these days I'm like more really digging into my vocalist cuz that is an instrument everyone. Your voice is an instrument. Um identity and and composer sort of track that I'm on so and of course the community organizing is so important to me that's why I make music so I think that's perfect so right now you're in Taos New Mexico what what brought you to Taos Taos originally I came in 20 I think 16 or 17 on vacation I was just um, in New Mexico with my spouse and we were really enchanted as happens in this beautiful state but i'm here this year because i heard about um an artist residency program that was based in taos and that because having been to taos it sparked my attention because i remembered how just stunning the landscape is how powerful the history is and i want i dreamt of going back and then seeing this opportunity pop up and knowing that one of my colleagues in boston um had received a fellowship uh, and was encouraging me to apply to stuff. I just out of nowhere applied, and here I am. So how long is this residency? This particular residency is three months. That's awesome. We're going to dig deeper a little bit into the types of projects you're working on during the residency. But first, I want to like rewind and go back to when Saraswati Jones first started making music. What is your earliest music memory? Oh, that's a great question. You know, it was 
it, it had to do with Obama, as all good memories start. You know, it was the night, I think I had my first gig in 2008, and I was like opening for some friends at the now non-extent um, cafe, oh, gosh, is it the All Asia Cafe? All Asia um, in Boston, <laughs> this kind of really fun, grungy spot. Um, but it was the night before the election, and I was trying to figure out whether I should rehearse for this gig or watch the election. And I was trying to do both, but of course I chose watching the election. It was such an historic night, so I'm glad I made the right call. But I sounded amazing. That is amazing. Did you always sing with instruments? Were there times that you sang without instruments? Are you self-taught? I know, like now, I know you as a sitarist and a ukulele extraordinaire. And among many other things. So how did that part begin? This is, okay, so as a fellow Bengali, you may know, I don't know if this was the case in your house, but we would always have, like, a talent portion of the evening. You oh, know, yeah, it's like totally. Eat Definitely. dinner, right? <laughs> we eat dinner, and now Tanya will sing, you know, which is, like, always a surprise. You're like, oh, okay, okay, I guess this is mm-hmm. the thing that's happening now. Um but of course, you know, ever since I was a kid, I loved being, I didn't mind being on stage. I loved being in the spotlight. So, I mean, I remember singing, like, I think my earliest memory was I really nailed my cover of A Whole New World from the problematic Disney film Aladdin. And I was just, like, really getting in there, you know, I can show you the world. Like, I would sing the whole duet by myself. And I think that alone won over, like, all my mashis and meshos. <laughs> just like, okay, you know, this kid. So it was totally a cappella, and honestly, yeah. you know, joking aside, that really comes from the tradition of just like Bengali families sitting around, and sometimes there's a harmonium, and sometimes it's just a cappella, and often singing folk songs, Lokiti, you know, or um, Tagore songs, mm-hmm. you know, like the national poet. So, the, so my best and favorite memories of childhood are still just hanging around in my living room singing a cappella with my parents, you know, whether it was the Beatles or Rabindra Shangit, you know, <laughs> so it was something. And then karaoke happened when I was in my college years, but it was always a <laughs> That's amazing. <laughs> Thank you. Did you experience that too? You, you were, oh. I feel like vibing. Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, we definitely, in our community, a lot of us played instruments. Like I played flute and piano. Some people played clarinet, you know, like some people saxophone. There, everyone had a certain instrument. And so there's one particular misho who would always want to hear what we are, what pieces we were working on. And so <laughs> after dinner, we would have, you know, similarly have a show and he would give us notes after kind of like you give, he would give us feedback. He'd be like, Oh, you guys, um, have really improved or like, uh, I think the, the beginning was very strong and, but you know, near the end, you, it sounds like there's a little more practices needed. <laughs> like, that is so strange and beautiful that that is such a tradition among Bangalis. I mean, it isn't surprising, but I feel like everyone, a lot of Bengali people have that kind of similar narrative.
Okay, so we were talking about childhood and about the common experience, it seems, of Bengali talent shows after get-togethers. Complete with notes. I kind of, to this day, there's a part of me that lives in fear, especially, like, performing anything appropriate the Indian classical music realm that I'm going to get notes um, from, like, that uncle, you know, after the show. Yeah. Like, that was great. But (laughs) I kind of live in fear of that. But, you know, it's good. It it grounds me. So tell me about your entry into Indian classical music. Sitar plays a huge role in some of your recent tracks and your performances. And how did you find that instrument? Or like, how, how was that the instrument that spoke to you? And how have you started exploring it? Ah, well, I I grew up hearing sitar, I think from just my parents, they're such music lovers, and so I would hear sitar kind of always in the background, and it was a sound that um, just Mm -hmm. was kind of intuitively part of my musical, you know, learning, and I never even, I never touched it or even thought about playing it when I was a kid, but when I came to Boston, through friends and through Subdrift, I would meet a number of sitar players, you know, I would see people who were learning and it just, it was, it looked, it sounded even more amazing in person, you know, and just to be that close to a sitar. So Mm -hmm. really about seven or eight years ago, I think my friend Jada Willard, who's an extraordinary, um, she's a therapist and a healer and an artist, and she was playing sitar and doing some experimental music at like an art party. Mm. And she let me sort of just hold her instrument and really encouraged me to play with it. And and ever since then, anytime I could get my hands on someone's sitar <laughs> for better <laughs> worse, like at parties, you know, I'd just like play it by ear because there was something about it that felt so intuitive to me. And I and now I realize it's because sitar is kind of modeled off of the human voice. Mm. You know, everything about it is a vocalist, you know, the bends, the the elegant sort of um, wavering patterns and the longing, you know, it's all, all meant to sort of imitate the human voice. And so I was playing and I felt like I had sort of a connection to it or a knack for it. And um, and then for years I would, you know, borrow from friends or like, you know, play whenever I had the chance. And finally, mm-hmm. a few years ago, I decided, you know, I'm really going to commit to this. I'm not just going to you know, play it by ear because it's such a, you know, it's an Indian instrument. It's, there's so much nuance and, and so much training that goes into it. Um, I really wanted to devote just some time to really learning the fundamentals of it and, mm-hmm. and, and even trying to learn some of the theory. So um, I started taking lessons, I think almost two years ago now from Omar Wakar, who's an incredible musician, lives in LA and is a good friend. And, and I know you've met him and mm-hmm. spent time and made art with Omar too. Um, and he's just a brilliant teacher. And like me, you know, he comes at music from a similar place of, you know, learning first Western music and having a very punk rock sort of DIY do-it-yourself ethos, mm-hmm. <laughs> but mm-hmm. also really spending, having spent time not just with the instrument, but with its history. Mm-hmm. And I, so learning from him has really been a joy. We meet by Skype every week now, and it's, it's been great. That's amazing. Thank you. It's been so much fun and very humbling. (laughs) I feel like that is a good entry point to talk about your most recent track, Hey Dunia. Mm -hmm. 
tell me a little bit about its origin? Yes, definitely. <laughs> so Hey Dunia, it's definitely a sitar-driven track. I think I wrote it before I could even really play sitar, which is evident by some of the riffs, uh, at least to my ears. But I wrote it in a way, it's very much what, you know, I was hearing it. You know, I was just hearing that main mm. riff. And I listened to, yes, a lot of Indian classical music and Bengali folk. But I also grew up listening to bands like the Beatles. Yeah. <laughs> listening to Brian Jones, Town Massacre, you know, all these people that were mm-hmm. kind of, I feel annoyed saying it, but raga rock, you know, <laughs> which is... In many ways, pastors a layer of sitar over it for, like, coolness, you know, mm-hmm. <laughs> which I was sort of resented, you know. It was that I learned about sitar both at home, but then also, like, hearing, you know, the mo- most Americans, their connection to sitar is Beatles, the Beatles, mm-hmm. and still, to this day, in Taos, when I'm like, well, I'm learning sitar, people are like, hey, George Harrison, and I'm like, yeah. And I was really hearing this kind of ethereal, psychedelic sound, and I wanted to create something that was layered and lush and felt produced, but felt very dreamlike. And I hadn't done that before, really. I've done some some experimentation in the studio with my good friend Josh Cohen, who's recorded all his own work so far, almost. And this track just really helped me explore, and to bring in other musicians, too. I think it's um, it's not the first time I've done it. I've collaborated with other artists, definitely, in the past. It was on that track, or Shah Jahan Khan of the Kominas, mm-hmm. and Ragini Jawa, who goes by Bollywood ukulele, just an incredible vocalist and physician. Yeah. <laughs> but, so that was, it was a, a lot of new types of things for me. And yeah. a track that I really had so much fun making and, and still dance around to sometimes. It is so lush. That is the word that also comes to mind for me listening to it. And I think it is, I I wouldn't, the word is not a departure. It isn't a departure from the type of music I've heard you perform previously. But it, it is a really lovely evolution of you where you're at right now um and the things that are inspiring you right now which is it's just so lovely and it's a you know it's great that the rest of us can like join you on that ride and journey (laughs) thank you Nina that's really sweet that means a lot I mean you've you've seen me like really just try shit out you know how does it feel to return to solo performance under Saraswati Jones Whereas for, you know, many years, we've had the pleasure of hearing you perform with Awazdo, your band, out here on the East Coast. What has it felt like to to go back to this more solo kind it, of that's a, performance? That's a good question. It's so different. It's, uh, you know, being in Awazdo, Awazdo, I have my original kind of conception. I was like, this is my backing band. But what became so apparent, you know, in working with the really awesome musicians that were, that I got to work with over the years was that these folks all came in with their own ideas and their own, you know, directions. And as band members changed, the sound of the band changed. And I think Mm -hmm. I was really, you know, when I was with the band, I was trying 
to like learn how to accommodate and collaborate and make sure everyone feels heard and everyone feels good about the product. And that is such a different experience, you know, as you know, <laughs> organizing any group of people and, mm-hmm. and being open, you know, the democratic or semi-democratic process is, is not an easy one. And then when you add, you know, creative expression to it too, it can be really tough to navigate. So I think, you know, the, there's so many songs and sounds that came out of my band that I would never have dreamt up on my own, you know, mm-hmm. Sapan Modi, our mutual friend, just an incredible toll player mm-hmm. and a multi-instrumentalist. He added this really like you know, dancey kind of energetic vibe and our guitar player, total shredder, Jagdeep yes. Singh, you know, <laughs> he's just an amazing guitarist and a good friend but he 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 comes from he comes from like the sabbath and you know these heavy jethro tall like really really heavy 70s metal so that comes through and my bassist first bassist manav takor he was a real Mm -hmm. melodic Mm -hmm. bass player and and my our current bass player azar hussein is more of a he comes from like punk rock bass Mm -hmm. you know finding a, a meeting ground where everyone feels good about the product is such a different product so I'm just saying, all right, how can I take as far as with the Jones and my solo work? I'm like, here's the song that's in my brain. Mm-hmm. How mm-hmm. can I externalize this? You know, what instruments do I use? Who do I need to collaborate with? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And that's a totally different process because then I can only argue with myself, which is actually more frustrating. Yes, because then to make a decision about what to cut, what not to cut, what to re-record, what not to re-record, what to add, what not to add. Exactly. The major difference is process. Would you say you have a specific sound? (laughs) I have no idea. I'm just curious. I mean, as as a non-musician, it sounds like a, I feel like it either could be cool to know you have an aesthetic with sound that's consistent for like a particular project or a couple of tracks. But I also wonder if that just also adds a lot of pressure on an artist to, to sound a particular way. So I guess I just wanted to hear your thoughts on that. Maybe as someone who has been singing for such a long time and playing and with sound for for so many years. I like that question because it really, it's, it's, uh, I contend with how, to, with labels a lot, you know, mm-hmm. both in, as a, in social organizing and in, in art, you know, it's, it's useful, right? Because you can find each other, especially in our very, you know, media driven world where you, you add a hashtag and you have a community, you know, but it feels sometimes reductive or, or, not true sometimes to say, oh, I'm, I make punk rock music, or I make folk music, or I make Hindi rock, you know, so what I started doing is when I first started making music, I would just make these bullshit labels up for my music, and, and see what people (laughs) said, you know, just to, you know, to try to capture, Mm -hmm. I definitely have influences, you know, some of which are very, very apparent, but honestly, I love playing two-step country songs stripped down in acoustic as much as I love playing metal you know as much as I love playing kind of classical Indian influence stuff I love psychedelic so you know everyone does say my influences are broad and and I think so many folks are but I feel like called and pulled in so many directions sonically Mm -hmm. that 
I'm trying to be okay about not having a a sound, you know, mm-hmm. um, and just kind of, and that's part of why I'm I'm starting to just release tracks as they come to me, as opposed to like trying to create a cohesive piece of work that because it never will. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Do you think postcolonial is still an accurate way to describe the music you're making now? Mm. <laughs> I, I don't have an opinion either way. I'm just asking because I, it, it, it is the word that's most often associated with your music. Okay. Just, just, just to be clear, I'm, I'm, I'm not doing like gotcha journalism or anything like, or anything like that. I'm, I'm, I'm curious, honestly curious. No, I'm, I'm so glad. I'm so glad you asked because right now I'm just trying to think of how to shorten my answer because I could soapbox about it, but you know, post-colonial, do I think it captures my sound? Uh, no, because it doesn't really mean anything in and of itself. You know, when I first started making music, the first band I was in, the, the leader of that band, you know, he, he's, he gave me some good advice about labels. He's like, look, you know, labels are all BS, basically, <laughs> and you can call your music whatever you want. You know, just, you know, don't pigeonhole yourself and limit your creativity. And I, I thought that was really cool. And so Pulsoni started saying sort of position from which I write from lyrically which definitely applies, you know, in the sense that I think about a lot of my music addresses, like, it's storytelling and it, it thinks of my perspective, you know, the, the weight of colonization in, in everything I do. But the reason I hesitate and I'm grateful for the conversation is, you know, thinking more about what it means to be a colonized person who is also a settler on indigenous land, you mm-hmm. know, in this country, it's it's really complicated and it's complex. And I, you know, speaking with another uh, musician in Boston for an interview once, you know, they asked me this question, like, how do you reconcile with um, post-colonial? I don't think it was a gotcha moment. I think they were really just curious, you know, because they were thinking about these same issues. But, and I just, it, it really dawned on me that, I, you know, I'd sort of thought about colonialism only in the context of Britain's colonization of India. And even though, you know, of course, I feel very compassionate to the colonization elsewhere in the world. I hadn't really thought about the way that my role as a colonizer, you know, I never spoke to that in my music. So anyway, the long and short of it is being here in New Mexico, and especially in Taos, where, you know, indigenous, the process of colonization is still happening, and it still is everywhere, right? But here, the we're the, the presence of the indigenous people is palpable every day. You know, we we live on indigenous land. We all do in America, but literally, I think the land I'm living on is leased from House Pueblo. You know, wow. And being neighbors with a community, um, Taos Pueblo. By the way, if anyone visits Taos, you must go to Taos Pueblo. Um, Taos is an interesting and, and tragic place in that it became a real focal point for European settlers because it's so beautiful and particularly mm-hmm. for artists. So there's a huge, you know, artistic colonization that's happened in this place. And, you know, despite people who have lived here for a thousand years, Taos Pueblo is the longest continuously inhabited indigenous uh, settlement in America. Um, you know, all of the emphasis, I think, on the art and culture of is your is your you know it's it's amazing to me that of all of the galleries of all the foundations here I, I can't even find one that is specifically about the indigenous people indigenous culture and to me that feels hmm. calling <laughs> mm-hmm. truly and how does uh 
How has this sh- this uh, context shaped how you're approaching your residency? Oh my gosh. Um, <laughs> well, it's, it's made me feel like there's a response, that I have a responsibility to whom, well, I have definitely a responsibility to the indigenous people on whose land I'm standing. And I want to carry that with me beyond just these three months. Um, and I want to be more intentional about seeking out indigenous history and, uh, and, and creativity and creative resistance. Like you have, to, you have to practically be a detective to seek it out here, you know, beyond just sort of. Um, and also, I really want to start a conversation with, um, with the director of the program about making sure that we all have a mandatory introduction to, you know, the people on whose land mm-hmm. we're standing in that setting. And that right now is just not part of the conversation. You know, in Taos, there's a lot of um, and the settlers who came from actually from New York City. There's a lot of folks that came from New York and from actually the industrial Midwest. You know, people who made their fortunes in the Midwestern U.S. also did just land. Mm-hmm. And then came mm-hmm. to Taos because it was so beautiful and settled here and sponsored artists to come here. So that is colonization, and I'm part of it. You know, we even call our place an artist colony. And I'm like, oh, my God. And <laughs> so, so certainly this is this has really, really radically changed the way I think about the language that I use. And, and really, it's really stirring this responsibility, I feel, um, not only as somebody who's experienced the pain, <laughs> the multi-generational pain of colonization, mm-hmm. but somebody who, like, is just passionate about learning more. And so I do think, to circle back to your original question about um, post-colonial music and what does that mean, I think for me, it's just, it's like a, mm-hmm. it's a way to listen. The perspective that you just shared is reminding me of some of your uh, previous music. I'm thinking of Mother Tongue in particular, just because it's, you know, a few days after Ekushe and International Mother Language Day, right? And the multiple ways you've grappled with Bengali identity um, and the the violence that has shaped Bengali identity, but that doesn't get talked about. Your mother tongue, you were born today. talk me through that a little bit uh, you've had multiple projects too I, I remember with with Sharman Hussein in New York I don't have the right words to talk about it so maybe I would but I would really appreciate if you jumped into it and also yeah introduced us sorry that was all like word vomit no incoherent no word okay. vomit. <laughs> <laughs> I mean you're not talking about like what handbag to buy you know we're talking about this like complex historical political violence and influence on art you know it's it's complicated stuff right like I think even many of our your listeners might not be familiar with the, the history of Bangladesh and why it's important and why we can't continue to talk about South Asian narratives if it, as if it's India and Hindu, right? It's very, very diverse. So like you, I had this wonderful opportunity to be a Fulbright scholar. And when I was, I think, just out of college, maybe a year after, I was a Fulbright scholar to Bangladesh. And I spent a year living um, in Dhaka, Bangladesh, which is the capital. And I really, it, it opened my world, you know. I'm Bengali ethnically. My parents were born and raised in Kolkata, which is the, you know, capital of West Bengal in India. But my ancestors are all straight up from Borishal, which is like, mm-hmm. you know, this riverine country in the southern part of Bangladesh. So I have a very strong ancestral ch- tie to the land. 
but how does this relate to the music? Well, when I was in Bangladesh, I learned about the really, really, really brutal history of the country. And, and I was so moved by the way people stood up for their culture and for their language when India and, and Pakistan were divided in 1947 very hastily, you know, what we call partition. Mm-hmm. Um, Bangladesh was sort of chunked off and made a part of Pakistan. And for my parents' generation, they always call Bangladesh East Pakistan. And because they're, they're, they're also many, most Bangladeshis are Muslim. And so they're like, okay, well, keep all the Muslims together. Great, you're now Pakistan. But with the imposition of the Urdu language from Pakistan and the systematic just erasure of Bengali culture, people had enough, you know, and they were mm-hmm. like, no. And that's how Ikusha February or International Mother Tongue Day was born, was really out of that resistance to taking uh, one's language and culture. And I was just like so moved by that. It was just so beautiful. I was like, wow, who, you know, like when I was at that age, I just hadn't heard about wars being fought over one's heritage and culture. And I suddenly understood why so many Bengali and Bangladeshi families that I knew growing up insisted on speaking Bangla in the home, mm-hmm. you know, not just because it was, you know, I mean, some people, yes, it was just kind of the proper thing to do, but I, it just made it all the more precious to understand that, that, you know, people's culture is so important and it's, I mean, it's it's tricky, right? Because who defines culture, you know, and who defines people, right? Right. But in the case of Bangladesh, where that um, just doesn't get as much of a spotlight, you know, in, in terms of South Asian history, but that's changing, and I'm so grateful for that. Does that? I don't know if that answers the question, but that's yeah, how, that's why I wrote Mother Tongue. I don't. It's one of my favorites. I like it a lot. As, not like I'm biased or anything about any of your music, <laughs> but. <laughs> That's right now. Totally unbiased. You can stream it at sarsopijones.bandcamp. <laughs> yes, very um, good. Well, but but not actually, but you can, and it's not actually, and all of the ways you can find Saraswati Jones will be definitely in our show notes for sure. There's so many ways you can find her work. <laughs> um, it is everywhere. It's prolific in the best way possible because we definitely need more brown femmes with cool haircuts who've like and rad tattoos with awesome voices and like who are comfortable making mistakes on stage and like experimenting and like learning from it and evolving in our community so that's all so there's two things that come to mind after just saying that like one i know you have gifted the some of the little ones in your life a drum kit (laughs) as an aunt as as a mashi and then And like the second layer is that a lot of your advocacy work when in Boston was with Girls Rock Camp Boston. And so what do you want to tell kind of the next gen of specifically like little brown femme and non-binary folks who are interested in making music? About Girls Rock Camp, you know, I, it's just, it's a non-profit organization. It's, um, there's cities all over the world are doing rock camps. Um, and it is just, it's an organization in Boston. I was based in the, I was very involved in the Boston based chapter for, um, eight or nine years, three years as a board member and and a couple of years as a board president. And the way I see it transforming lives, not just because I love rock and roll music, (laughs) um, but just to show young people, kids and non-binary, to show girls and non-binary kids that they can do something 
that they're often told not to, which is be loud and to be imperfect and to be unapologetic. And so really rock camp is, uh, in my experience, it's always been about you know, showing people this other way of existing in the world and using music as a vehicle to do it. But you could really do it with soccer or you could do it with, you know, painting. You could do it with any number of things. But what we taught young people was this no holds barred, no apologies approach to music. And what I've seen happen is, yeah, some kids go on to like form bands and it's awesome. They make music videos and they, you know, get really into it. But some kids never pick up a guitar again or drums or whatever but they carry that lesson with them. And for Mm -hmm. me, that's just so important. That, uh, I wish, I'm so glad that you're able to create that space for younger folks now, because I think there's a lot of us in our generation who, especially among South Asian families, where those alternate, like quote unquote, alternative interests, We're not necessarily encouraged because either our families were not familiar, they were too other, they were too queer, they were too, insert whatever other adjective there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, and honestly, I think so many people, are, it's changing. I do feel it changing, you know, and I'm just, I'm so grateful that there's just been an explosion of creativity, of alternative interests, you know, alternative ways of looking and, <laughs> and, you know, just representation. It's just, it's such a re- like renaissance moment right now in, among South Asians in the diaspora. It's just never been more, there, it, there's just, I think a lot, there's a lot of ways to, there's a lot of ways to go too, but just hearing people having candid conversations about gender and about queerness and about you know, caste oppression, you know, this is just mm, so mm-hmm. important. And so I just feel like, hallelujah, you know, how, how can I support that work? You know, how can I you know, educate myself and, and just stand behind this important stuff, you know, because it's just like, it's just, you're right, it just wasn't there when I was growing up. And, and honestly, part of my growing up was in Boston, you know, I came as in my mid-20s, and I spent my formative adult years going to these discussion groups in this living room in Cambridge where we'd like Mm -hmm. make a vegan meal and talk about democracy in Pakistan and and really hearing those radical perspectives, hearing people that were standing up for the most marginalized in society and making it their passion. You know, and these are, these are mostly folks that came from India, Pakistan, Bangladesh, you know, and, and were living briefly, however briefly in the United States. It made me realize that there's another way of existing besides like, you know, more like more suburban existence that I had that was Hindu, that was very you know um, mm-hmm. Hindu centric. I should say not not very Hindu. We had a very diverse community, but you know the way we talked about Indian history was always like I mean, forget South Asian history. It was always Indian history, and it was always right. you know there was there was no Muslim history there. You know, mm-hmm. so there were no Dalit people, mm-hmm. no heroes. Mm-hmm. And Lord, how that's changed. Boy, am I glad. What you've articulated right there is such a lovely reflection of what the potential of this moment is not only centered with uh, younger folks who we are seeing grow up and explore the multitude of identity in such diverse thoughtful interesting ways but also there's also a whole generation above us 
who've they've mm. seen some shit, you know, <laughs> and they've been, there, yeah. they've been there. And sure, sometimes they don't have the right words, you know, like the language that we use now to articulate some of these feelings. But I mean, that's what I admire about the discussion group that you mentioned is that it is an intergenerational space. Um, you have people who are old, you have people who are young, and that it that conversation is bi-directional. We're learning from each other. And I feel like that's probably the only way we can go forward collectively. Like right, right in, in 2019. 2019. Absolutely. Absolutely. We need to like I'm laughing because the the youngest person I ever saw at the Wednesday night discussion was, I think, this child that we both know and love named Salsa Beale when she was like yeah. maybe an infant. Like, I think she was still suckling. And the yeah. oldest was a cha-cha who I think was almost 100 who we had a birthday party for. So it's yeah. truly intergenerational, you know. It's it's so true. And I think, yeah, you're you're so right. That's, that's you got to have, I mean, there is a lot of focus on youth and young people. And rightly so. They are the future. But... I think the future has to be rooted in the wisdom of the past. Before we wrap up, is there anything that's just on your mind like this week that you would like to share? Oh, thank you for asking. (laughs) Oh my gosh. I am thinking a lot about how, how to create spaces for marginalized artists, for people of color, folks who might, who, for poor folks, for po- folks yeah. who don't have access to these spaces that I dance around in. And, and I realized that I, I like, before, actually before I organized with like, organizations like Girls Rock Camp, I never thought about, um, and I'm ashamed to admit this, you know, but classic accessibility in everything we do. And I think um, one thing that I'm learning from this program is that, yes, this space is so precious to have time to reflect and make art and cook for yourself. But, you know, the reality is if I had kids and was a single mom, I couldn't afford to do this, you know, and, and these spaces kind of continue to be accessible mostly to folks who can already afford it. So, yeah, I'm just thinking, like, what does it look like? What does the future look like where um, these kinds of experiences are open to many, many, many kinds of people and everyone, really? Mm-hmm. And that's kind of a few, that's been germinating in my mind. So if anyone wants to get together and have some kind of <laughs> collective where we, you know, create these spaces for others, God, that's, I think it would just be a better world. Truly. And where can people find you? So if they do want to connect <laughs> and build this <laughs> collective you. future together. Yeah, absolutely. Please just DM me. Um, DM me on Facebook. DM me on Instagram. Um, as Saraswati Jones um, name on both so yeah let's talk I'm always about you know trying to open up opportunities and it's not that I know everything I'm definitely learning you know as I go and stumbling and making mistakes but let's make them together because I think it's better to stab in the direction of progress you know Um, but that's been on my mind Thank you, Saraswati Jones. One last question. I was going to like actually do like a really professional, beautiful sign off right there. But I always keep meaning to ask, where did Jones come from in Saraswati Jones? <laughs> like Saraswati <laughs> made sense because you have an affinity for the Devi Saraswati. She's on your arm um, like as a gorgeous tattoo. But Jones, I think that <laughs> that's great. That's great. I so Jones. That's I. I did it partly to just see what people read into. 
So yeah. it was a little bit of a conversation starter, you know, <laughs> from like, I love to do that. I'm like, art is a conversation. Like, let's do a thing, you know, but for me, the intention when I first had took that moniker was partly to, to point out my bicultural identity and, and sort of creative, the fires, the creative fires from which I was forged or whatever, <laughs> are really <laughs> both American and very, very deeply, you know, rooted in South Asia, too. Also, as a shout out to black exploitation films that shape my imagination, Cleopatra Jones, and, mm-hmm. you know, other films that, you know, talk about marginalization in this really creative way. And also, I, I really was interested in what people read into about that. Some folks asked if I was married to an American, you know, American, you know. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but it also, I don't know, it just, it, it's just, uh, it's taken on a new shape. That is, uh, okay, good. I'm really happy that I could finally squeeze that question <laughs> in the there. Thanks for, hum- thanks for humoring me. <laughs> absolutely. Also, Saraswati Smith just didn't wrote I also like for some reason with Saraswati Jones I was like oh this makes sense because like you have so much country in a lot of your singing bluesiness <laughs> Jones no you blues uh and country you know they're all rooted in black American tradition you know that American music wouldn't exist you know, without these foundational um, forms of music. And I draw heavily on that. You know, my voice is just kind of built to, to croon. So <laughs> built to croon. That's gonna- Yes, totally. You're like, it sounds kind of like a car ad, except not. <laughs> built to croon, baby. Don't try this at home. <laughs> on that yeah, thank note. Thank you so much. This has <laughs> been such a pleasure. It, it's been really lovely to hear your voice and just hear about all of the different threads that brought you to where you are today. And I just very much look forward to see where this continues to take you. Thanks for being like a DD and Aww. being such an inspiration. <laughs> um, I really look up to your example and I'm just really grateful to call you like a role model and a friend. So thank you. Thank you, Nina. That means so much to me. (laughs) Thank you. We'll talk soon. Yes, talk soon. Take care. Good night. If you like what you hear don't hesitate to leave us a review on apple podcasts it allows other people to find our show you can find almira radio online at almiraradiohour.com as well as on twitter and facebook at almira radio you can find sheila on twitter at queen of blah and you can find nina on twitter at only nina until next time <laughs>